So our days are so busy with stuff. We have work to do. We have courses to study. We have hobbies to get stuck into. We have books to read, books to write, letters to reply to. We've got houses to furnish, friends to make. We've got the telephone to answer, problems to solve, children to raise, nappies to change, scalextric to make. We've got coffee to drink. We've got admin to get on top of. We've got the lawn to mow. We've got plants to water. We've got the food to prepare and eat. We've got rubbish to take out, recycling to sort, Facebook to faff on. (laughs) We've got apps to waste time on. We've got assignments to do, job applications to fill in. We've got weddings to organise. And suddenly our lives feel very much like the lives of those around us. Friends who wouldn't call themselves Christians, they do the same kinds of stuff, they fill their diaries with the same kinds of things, they drive the same kinds of cars, they fill their houses with the same flat-pack furniture, they have the same kinds of daydreams of success, of climbing ladders, of jobs that pay well, of letters after names, of children who succeed, of the chance to travel, of a retirement, to just slow down a bit. And suddenly, as followers of Jesus, we wake up and we look at our lives and we look at the lives of those around us and we think, what is real? Am I, am I chasing the wrong bus? Am I, am I right to bank it all on this man who died 2,000 years ago? To build a life on him? Because I, I look at them and I look at me and they are clever and articulate and confident. They have more money. They've got better jobs. They've got whiter teeth. They go on nicer holidays. They have better gap years or whatever it is. They're just better at life in Oxford. And then I look at my church. They're just a bunch of misfits, aren't we? People from all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds and stories and skeletons. And we're sat here, many of us grown adults, in a primary school gym on plastic chairs that are uncomfortable, singing along to an out-of-tune piano, songs about a man who died 2,000 years ago. And then we drink coffee from paper cups. Are we chasing the wrong bus? What is real? I don't know when you doubt your faith. I don't know when you feel a bit wobbly or when you're questioning what it is that you believe. I know for many people it's when we start to play that comparisons game and we begin to judge truth with what looks slick and powerful and strong. And so we look at Jesus and we look at the church and we look at ourselves and we think, is it right? What is truth? But as we look at Ephesians, and especially our verses for this morning, one thing that we'll see that is vital for that question is that Christians are simultaneously in two places. So we're not just in Oxford, we're in Christ. So have a look down with me and notice in verse 1, as the children saw, this was a letter from Paul. He's an apostle of Jesus, he's sent by Jesus. But it's two people in Ephesus, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Ephesus, as you may or may not know, was an important and prosperous city in in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. It was prosperous because it was a trading centre. It was a port. 
there was stuff coming in, stuff going out. There were good uh, connections and roads going inland. It was a melting pot of people, of ideas. It was key commercially, but it was also key religiously as well. At the very centre was this famous temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, destroyed by the Goths in 268 AD. And she was key to the Ephesian identity, to what mattered to being in Ephesus. And so Paul takes the gospel to Ephesus in Acts 19, and it's because his news about Jesus threatens Artemis that he's chased out. Do you remember? And Demetrius, let me read to you from Acts 19. Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers, in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and that the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and soon the whole city was in uproar. You see, verse 1, they are in Ephesus. Ephesus, the commercial centre. Ephesus, the melting pot of ideas, the place of religion, just as we are in Oxford. And it's when we just see things in light of being in Oxford that we begin to wobble. Just as the temple of Artemis would have loomed large over Ephesus, so our culture looms large in our minds. We feel intimidated. But we're not just in Oxford. We're in Christ. And Christ is bigger than Oxford. Remember who you are, says Paul. It's one of the drumbeats of the letter. You are in Christ. If, if you missed our church weekend away a couple of weeks ago, then let me encourage you to download the MP3s and to think about what it means to be in Christ from our website. Vital thought for us if, if we're Christians here this morning. So have a look at the passage, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him we also were chosen. And to be in Christ, that is a new thought for you, it means that all that he is and all that he has done is yours. It is for you. We saw it with the kids again. Our our, our world is broken. That truth is foundational to the letter. We walk out on God and in comes war. War between us and God. And war with one another as well. War with actions as we're petty and we fight and we lash out at each other. Well, with words as we snipe and gossip and argue and shout and we're unkind or we hurt people. Or simply war in our minds in the way that we mentally judge and compare and condemn people. We, we walk out on God and in comes war. And in comes division. But Paul says when you trust in Jesus, these divisions go 
You are included into his death on the cross, which means his death is your death. His forgiveness that he won is for you. The blessings that he achieved, they are all yours as you are in Christ, as you trust him. You are united to the God who made you. And it's not just about you and God, it's all of us. It has a corporate dimension too. He's made this church. He's made a people. Which means as you're in Christ, you are in on the one true God's one true plan for this broken world. So don't be intimidated. Before we dive in, and we're still sort of waggling over the T, I want to give you two cross-references just to help you find your, uh, your references, your, your points in, in, in Ephesians, what's going on. So have a look firstly at 1 verse 10, and he points ahead to the end of the story in 1 verse 10. A couple of key verses in Ephesians, 1 verse 10. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay, so that is the end of the story. Is the world random? No, it's not. It's going somewhere. Everything is being brought together under Christ, and one day everyone will see that. But then just flick ahead. Got 1 verse 10 now, remember 3 verse 10. Do you see it? 3 verse 10. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So where's the world going, 1 verse 10? It's all going under Christ and his headship. That is the end of the story. Finally, reunited and brought back under God. And yet what does the church do now? Well, it shows a watching cosmos, 3 verse 10. It shows a watching cosmos, God's wisdom. And it shows a watching cosmos, what is to come. He says, you're a foretaste of what is to come. The manifold wisdom of God is being seen now in the church. We're, we're an imperfect foretaste, but we're a foretaste. Whether the grainy, blurred picture that you see as you scroll through a summer holiday brochure, a, a pale reflection of what's coming. But we're still a reflection. Which is why local churches matter. It's why the local church is the hope of the world. Because we are just a glimpse of where it's going. A diverse people united around the cross. So God has a plan. Let's begin to work that plan through. We're back in chapter 1. Well done for keeping up. I want you to see this morning that this plan is Trinitarian. This plan is about all of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working to bring about his purposes. So firstly, Paul says, praise the Father who selects, verse 3 to 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So I want you to see that God the Father is in charge. That is vital to cling on to. Because if it all hangs on me or if it all hangs on you 
then we've got no room for confidence. I've got it wrong and I've mucked up multiple times before breakfast. But God the Father does not. And he has not. He is in charge. And so it is he who brings about his glorious purposes. He is the one at work. He does it. We're just the receivers. We're just the passengers. We're just the benefactors. We'll see in weeks to come, but because of his grace and his kindness, there's just no room for boasting. He does it all. And so be encouraged, verse 3, by the kind of God that he is. It's a striking verse. I think we lose a bit of the punch, sadly, in our translation. I think for consistency in verse 3, it ought to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. At the foundation of the letter, we have a blessed God, a good God. A blessed God who blesses. Because of who he is, well, so he acts. What God is like dictates the kind of things that he does, the way that he treats his people. Which is a long way from how many perceive God. Our heart can often just default into thinking, well, I'm bad, God doesn't like me, I need to earn his love, so that's what I'll do. But now ours is a God who overflows with goodness. In Christ, he blesses his people abundantly. Because he's that kind of a God then, he selects, verse 4, he chooses people before the creation of the world. Not because of anything in us, but because of what we're like, but because of him and what he's like. And yet many of us flinch at that. We find that tricky this idea that God chooses a people for himself. And I I take it there is a mystery to it. I take it that there are questions that flow from it. But I take it too, this is a sign that he is in charge and we are not in charge. I think it's how God has always worked. If you look back in the Old Testament, you will see God's purpose for tiny Israel that he chose as his treasured possession among all the others was not because there was anything good about them, not because they were lovable or or strategic or they had potential, but just because he chose them and through them he would reveal what he was like to the world. It's how God always works. In fact, it's striking. If you read through these verses with that kind of a framework in mind, it is as if Paul is retelling the story of the Old Testament and yet through different eyes in the New Because like them, we are described, verse 4, as sons of God. As they were, if you remember the Exodus. The difference now, though, is that he has included the Gentiles in. We'll see in a bit, verse 13. He's retelling the story, but his promises have been extended and expanded as the Gentiles have been brought into this divided humanity that's now been united again around Jesus. Now a multi-ethnic, multi-background, multi-race community. Diversity, but with a unity. It's one of the reasons we as a church would love to reach the diverse communities within this area, within Oxford. Because that seems to be the way the church ought to be. Divided people brought back together 
around the gospel. The gospel unites. And they are a community of people, see, who have been chosen by God to be holy and blameless and different for a different purpose. And adopted as sons, that's the language of status and inheritance. Why? Verse 6, well, it's for his plan, his praise, his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. They're enormous concepts. How do you cope with enormous concepts like that? I think if they're familiar to us, there can be this sort of shrug of the shoulder, water off a duck's back, and, and if they're not, then we've just got questions bobbing and brimming, and we're not quite sure what to do with stuff. All these but what abouts that spring to mind for us. Just for now, perhaps latch onto humble confidence. As we read these verses, remember humble confidence. We're humble because we've been brought into God the Father's plan for the world. And that is astounding. He chose us, he predestined us. That blows your mind. It's not about us. It's about him. But confidence, because we've been brought into God the Father's plan for the world. We are in Christ. His plan is unstoppable. And when we feel little and small and wobbly and insignificant and intimidated, know that you are part of the one true God's one true plan for his world. And you're not just in Oxford. You're in Christ. Let's think about Jesus, second point. Praise the Son who secures, verse 7 to 12. Do you see just how important this plan is to God? He gives his most precious thing in all eternity. He gives his Son. We're willing to pay for the kind of things that we care about. So if you're into fashion, you will pay the money for the right brands. If you're into food, then you will go to the nice restaurants. We're willing to pay for the things that we love. And so it's striking that God the Father gives God the Son to secure a people for himself as he willingly and lovingly dies in their place. And as he does that, as the cross happens, then everything changes. So maybe you're somebody and you are haunted by your past. Look at verse 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So whatever you've done, whatever you've been caught up in, whatever the skeletons in your closet, whatever the regret and the shame that you feel, if you're in Christ, you have been redeemed. You're his. Just as when he rescued, he redeemed a people from Egypt. So he has redeemed a people here. God has bought you for himself. God has forgiven you. And it's not about your faithfulness. It's not about your track record. It's not about the kind of week that you've had. It's not about the size of your faith. It's not how great you think you are. No, it's his faithfulness. It's his track record. It's the size of the God that we have, the size of the plan of which we're a part. The blood of Jesus is enough if we're haunted by our pasts. 
Maybe you're somebody and you're, you're scared about the future. You don't quite know what's coming. And that makes you anxious. Well, do you remember verse 10? We know where it's all going. We know how the story pans out. There's a sense in which I think you can look at history and you can see circularity. There are patterns and prophecies and mistakes and meanderings, but, but Paul says it's all going somewhere. 1 verse 10. It's all coming under Christ. The future looks good. It's been great for me to remember that and for us as a church these past few months and years. Many of you will know it's been a time of change for us at Magdalen Road and we thought about it a bit last week with the uncertainties and the not quite sure what's going to happen over the next year. But in the scheme of things, they're quite little because we know where it's all going. We know what the end game is. <coughs> Maybe it's not the past and it's not the future, it's just now. Life is just a bit rubbish. Have a look at verse 11. It's a staggering claim from Paul in verse 11. In him, again in Jesus, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That means that God is at work now, working everything in conformity with the purpose of his will now. Which means that if life is hard now, then you can be confident he's at work. I have a confession. We um, wasted 86.9 hours watching Lost on box sets on TV. If, if you've not seen it, um, come chat afterwards. I'd love to avoid you to avoid that. Um, <laughs> The tagline, if you might remember, of the show was everything happens for a reason. Do you remember that? I don't think they've been reading Ephesians 1, the writers of Lost. I don't think we would agree on what the reason was for everything happening. But that seems to be what Paul is saying in verse 11. It's a massive claim. God is working out history however messy and mucked up it looks, however painful it might be to accept, however rubbish life is at the moment, he is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's the big decisions. Welcome to Oxford. God wants you here. He is working everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And the little things. So think about your neighbours, the people that you live next door to. He has put you in that house for a reason. Think about your friends. He has given you those friends for a reason. Your course mates, you are on that course for a reason. Your job, you're in that job for a reason. In this room this morning, you are here for a reason. Because everything is being worked out in conformity with the purpose of his will. Again, this will raise questions for some of us. 
how can God be at work in and through and despite evil and not be responsible for it or blamed for it or affected by it? It's one of those big questions that we will wrestle with at times. I take it a help is to look at the cross. To look at the cross where you see the greatest evil ever committed by man that brought the greatest good you could ever imagine. God is at work in and through and despite evil to bring about his purposes. He is working everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. Again, why? Verse 12, for the praise of his glory. Last couple of verses, third point. Praise the Spirit who seals. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So those whom God the Father has chosen and those whom Jesus the Son has redeemed and forgiven, while God the Holy Spirit will seal and will keep them, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit at work. So there's a theologian called James Torrance um, who, who writes with different answers to the question, when did you become a Christian? And he said, well, firstly... I've been a child of God from all eternity. I guess he gets that from verse 4. Secondly, I became a child of God when Christ the Son lived, died and rose for me long ago. But thirdly, I became a child of God when the Holy Spirit sealed in my faith and experience what had been planned from all eternity in the heart of the Father and what was completed once and for all in Jesus Christ. All of God at work, bringing about his purposes his plan of salvation. And so we have the Holy Spirit who seals us. It seems to me that's for various reasons. Verse 13. It's an ownership thing. So it's the blue spray paint that you spray on your sheep uh, to show that they're yours. It's the brand you press into a cattle. It is writing with indelible ink on your child's lunchbox. This belongs to them. Ownership. God says, mine. He puts his spirit in you and says, you are mine. But I wonder if it's more than that as well. I think it might be a a pointing back again to the Old Testament thing, a protection. They look back at their history. He's using ideas from the Old Testament and developing them. So in Ezekiel, God's people were marked. They were sealed as protection. They didn't receive judgment from sin. They were marked with a sign that said they belong to God. And so here, God's people are marked with a sign that they belong to him. Verse 13, the promised Holy Spirit. God says, don't don't touch them. They are mine. I love them. Take it that may have been a surprise as this letter was first read out in a church in Ephesus, particularly if you were a Christian from a Jewish background, because perhaps you thought that, that these promises were for you and your people. They were your scriptures. And yet it seems, I think the you also in verse 13 is when he brings the Gentiles into, you also were included in Christ. 
They have been included in the promises. They are now part of God's family, not as some sort of second-class citizen, the embarrassing cousin that you avoid at family gatherings. No, no, they're central. They're key. They're foundational to the people of God. Divided humanity, united again. So it's ownership, it's protection. I think it's a pledge or a deposit as well in verse 14. He has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So, so you saved up your money month on month on month and you finally got enough just about to buy a new car. And usually you don't just go and pay for it all in one go. You put down a deposit. You give 10%. You say, I'm interested in this car. Set it aside for me. I will come back and I will collect it and I will pay for it. Here's my deposit. Well, so as the Holy Spirit lives in Christians, he's acting as a deposit. Almost as if there's just this part of the future that's come into the now. We have a foretaste of, of what's to come. comes to meet us in the present. And it guarantees God will come back and he will pick up this person. He will come and be with us. Such that, verse 14, we have our inheritance. Which I take it ultimately is a transformed world. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the day that the Lord Jesus comes back and brings in the new creation. It's a time when there is no more war. No war between us and God. No war between us and us. The inheritance is a place of peace. A place of grace. It's the kind of place that the church is just a glimpse of now. But we know there's more to come. And notice again, it's all done, verse 14. Do you see? To the praise of his glory. It's a striking phrase, isn't it? It comes up three times, or something very much like it in our passage. So verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 12, for the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. One for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. All of God working together for the praise of his glory. God's eternal plan is to glorify himself by saving a people for himself until the final redemption of those who are his. God is glorified not as some sort of a megalomaniac. He's somebody who needs our worship, a needy someone who keeps checking Facebook. Have they liked my comment yet? Just looking out for more follows on Twitter. Not that kind of a, of a worship. He's not needy, but rather so that more may enjoy him. His goodness and his grace, so they may know and love and treasure him. So that more may have life eternal. To the praise of his glory. Do you know, I wonder if we really grasp more of what it meant to be part of God's plan, to have Father, Son and Spirit at work, to secure a people for himself to rescue us, to keep us. We, we wouldn't spend quite so much time thinking about what it means to be in Oxford. We wouldn't spend so much time comparing ourselves with other people. It would change the kind of things that we chased after and worried about and made us anxious and kept us up at night. And It would change the way we just tried to fit in with everybody else. 
change everything. I wonder too whether it might change our understanding of God, that we might be really those who praise him. I think that must be our response and our application for this passage. We may well end up with questions. I'm sure there are folks out there thinking, don't like the idea of God choosing people. There are bits that we're not quite sure about. Bits that we need to wrestle with. But it's striking, isn't it? Paul writes, so that we may praise God. That we may praise the Father who selects and the Son who secures and his Holy Spirit who seals.